Welcome to the Creative Entrepreneur Podcast, where mindset and marketing meet purpose, passion, and profits. I'm Bob Baker, and if you're a creative entrepreneur or someone who runs a heart-centered business, you're in the right place. To get a free collection of sample chapters from my books and audiobooks, just pay a quick visit to promoteyourcreativity.com. That's promoteyourcreativity.com. Now, enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Creative Entrepreneur. This episode features Jamie Stegmeier, a board game creator, the first I've ever interviewed or even met for that matter. And check this out. Jamie generated a total of $3.2 million from a series of Kickstarter campaigns he ran for his board games. He even wrote a book about crowdfunding. I know you'll enjoy this one even if you have no interest in board games. His mindset and approach is something any creative entrepreneur can put to good use. This is actually the first in a fresh batch of interviews that I'll be posting, so I consider this episode to be the beginning of season three of the podcast. Before we dive into that interview with Jamie, I want to invite you to get on the Creative Entrepreneur VIP list. It's free and easy, and when you become a member, you'll get free access to my 30 Ways to Become an Empowered Artist course on Udemy. People have paid anywhere from $40 to $99 for this, but it's yours free. All you have to do to get it is go to PromoteYourCreativity.com. That's PromoteYourCreativity.com. Now let's go to that interview right after I say, I'm Bob Baker, and this is The Creative Entrepreneur, Season 3, Episode 1. So on Skype with me right now is Jamie Stegmeier. Hey, Jamie, how are you? Hey, Bob, good to see you again. It's good to see you too. Yeah, we met here in St. Louis where you have been living, I guess, off and on. Uh, I don't think you're originally from here, uh, but you were, uh, yeah, you were on a panel on crowdfunding and it was actually at a book publishers association. So two of the three people, if I recall, were actually there for books, but you had such a fascinating story about crowdfunding and you are definitely the first board game creator that I've ever interviewed on the show and even ever I've ever met in person come to think of it instead of like going through a bio or giving you like a big introduction or something off of your website I always like to just ask people like if if you meet somebody at a party and you're meeting them for the first time they say so Jamie what do you do how do you answer that question I tell them um I tell them that that I am a board game designer and publisher sometimes hesitantly because I never know how much people know about the board game world or or their initial uh, impressions of, of what that will mean. But yeah, that, that, is, that is what I would say. I'm a board game designer and publisher, and I write about Kickstarter a lot, crowdfunding. Yeah, and you actually have a book out, I think it's called The Crowdfunders Strategy Guide, right? Right. Uh, that right. we're going to yeah, talk about a little bit about, about here. So I'm fascinated by this because, I yeah, I don't know a lot about the whole board game world. So this is going to be instructive for me. I mean, we met and I heard you speak, but there's still a lot about this that I don't know about. So I'm going to learn as, as my listeners do, too. Because, yeah, I mean, I've done played board games over the years, but I'm not, I didn't really grow up in like a big gaming you know, family. I know some people are really entrenched in that. So what's your story? Like, how did, was it something that you did from childhood? Or yeah, tell me a little bit about the, how you got into it and what led to you creating your own. My parents nurtured all kinds of creative aspects of, of 
me and my siblings. And uh, from a pretty young age, one of the things that we did as a family was play board games. Um, some of the classics that I'm sure people know, you know, Monopoly and Sorry and Scrabble, those types of games, but also some like the early hobby games. Uh, a Scotland Yard is one that people may have heard of is one of the earliest hobby games. And so I was playing these games. And also as a as a kid, I was excited to design games. So even from from age six, seven, eight, I was every once in a while I would I would play a game and I would be inspired by it. And then I would design kind of my version of that game. Oh, wow. You actually like like get cardboard or I mean physically create your own iteration of, of one that was store bought, right? Right. They were usually different enough that I thought I had created my own thing. But looking back, they were very similar to the, the games that I was playing. But yeah, I would I would write up the rules. I would get out pen and paper and cardboard and and create a version. And you and my hope was that people would play these games with me. Usually what happened is that we would play it once and then people would just want to play the real version of the game and we would go back to doing that. And how old were, were you at, when you started doing this? Uh, probably six or seven. I was pretty young. Oh, wow. I think that's amazing when people who, you know, as adults, when they they find their right livelihood, and, they can, and I very similarly can trace it back to that age or grade, your early grade school when I got into writing and then later into music. Do you think a lot of people discount those things they did as a kid? And now that they're all grown up, you know, they got to find grown up things to do. But you didn't do that. Absolutely. I like the way that you put that because we do. I found myself doing it throughout my life, discounting those hobbies as just hobbies. And I guess to a certain extent, that's okay. Sometimes things just are hobbies. They're not going to be a career or anything more than that. But I'm glad I left that possibility open for it to be a little bit more than that cool. because it is my career now. And you mentioned the phrase hobby game, which I'm not familiar with. So is that a specific type of board game, a hobby game, as opposed to something else? Yeah, there's a, there, I guess there's there's mass market games, which are most of the games that you see at Target or, or Walmart, although those stores do now have some hobby games. And then hobby games are usually – they're not mass produced in the same way that Monopoly, like Monopoly comes out with hundreds of thousands of copies every year. Hobby games are usually print runs of 5,000 or 10,000 or even fewer. They rarely make it into a store like Target or Walmart. They usually find it game, stores that are dedicated only to board games. So I guess like the word boutique, like rec- a boutique record okay. label or a boutique. So it's like a similar type yeah. of thing. It's such a niche market. Uh, right. for people that, okay, cool. So, so I'm curious. So you did this when you were a kid, you created these things. So did you go off on a, like a traditional career path? Or I think, cause I think you came to St. Louis because you attended Washington university here. Is that right? Well, I assume you weren't pursuing a, de- a degree in board game cre- creation. I wasn't. There are actually some game design programs now. I believe there's one at Webster and which is, it would have been really neat for that to exist when I was in college. Um, but no, I studied international business and Japanese in, in college wow. at WashU, and then I went into uh, book publishing project management for a few years after that, and then I worked at Washington University for about five or six years after that. I assume, did you get away from the game thing, and then it kind of reemerged in your life later, which kind of often often happens? What's, how did that come about? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. It, it, was, um, it was always in the back of my head. I still liked thinking about game design, but throughout college, I think... I only designed one game, and I didn't. I didn't play a lot of board games throughout college, and it was a few years after college that I uh, got into it. Probably the most well-known hobby, or yeah, hobby game is Settlers of Catan, and so some friends introduced me to that game, and I got got kind of back into the, the world of gaming and game design. Cool. So you were inspired by someone else who had created this hobby game or boutique game or whatever you want to call it. Probably reawakened that 
thing that you've had since you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. Did you is that is that when you started thinking maybe I could I wonder if I could turn this into a business or did you how did that yeah what was your thought process? Well, at that point, at that point, it was very much still just something that I did for fun every now and then. It, it really did not occur to me that I could make a career out of this until years later after after my second successful board game Kickstarter. That was years later. That was only, I guess we're talking now in um, 2017. This was back in 20, the end of 2013, where I was like, okay, maybe I could do something more with this. Wow. And cool. that was after I'd already made some money from it, too. It, it was just a side thing, still a hobby. Well, we met at the St. Louis Publishers Association, so you may, I'm not sure how much you know about me, but I'm an author and, you know, I've been self-employed for a, a lot of years. And so, and I just recently, my 14th paperback book was published oh, wow. that arrived from the printer. Most of them are self-published or independently published. And so I know, you know, I'm very familiar with the ropes of all, all that goes into preparing files and getting your book out and, right. you know, printed in, into the distribution system. But I know when I see like people coming into it, they are very confused because it's all new to them and there's a steep learning curve. Like, so I feel the same way that like, those like new authors do about like, when I think of like creating a board game, it's like, how do you go about that? How do you get it mass produced? It just seems so so you you had to learn that on your own, and I guess similarly it's doable, but there's a learning curve, right? There was a huge curve, especially I I, I went into it for the first game that I was designing. I des- I started designing the game specifically to put on Kickstarter because I was really excited about the idea of Kickstarter, and I had the impression that Kickstarter itself was kind of a boutique platform in that I I thought that I would need to create like build each game by hand. And I started doing that just to prototype the game and, and test it out, test out different versions. And I realized, A, just how much work it was to hand create a board game and that it didn't look very good. It looked nothing like the, the polished, well done board game. So it was at that point that I started to reach out to manufacturers so I could create something that was polished and, and looked really good. Yeah. So you had to learn just like to figure out who makes this stuff and then you you right. just learn by doing little by little. So was your first, so yeah, I know that Kickstarter is a big part of your story and you have a unique yeah. way of doing Kickstarter where it's not just it's like an ongoing series of projects that we can yeah, chat about here. But so was Kickstarter part of your game creation thing right from the get-go, your first first one? And what year was that too? This was in uh in 20 well, I had followed Kickstarter since uh, I think pretty much since it's, since it launched because I, I was just fascinated by the idea of being able to connect with individual people like n- know know the faces and the names of all your customers just seemed incredible to me and to be able to fund something that didn't that doesn't exist but it was in, it was 2011 that I really started thinking okay I, I want to do this with a game I want to try to do this with a game so I started designing a game with that in mind that I would I would self publish it on Kickstarter or through Kickstarter it was that first campaign successful in your eyes it was i was very fortunate um yeah this campaign was run in or i ran it in 2012 in august of 2012 and we had a funding goal i believe it was either 25 or thirty thousand dollars because to make a minimum print run of a board game is actually a fairly significant upfront cost you have to make a minimum of 1,000 to 1,500 games unlike books where you could just publish a few copies there's no print on demand board games yet (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they kind of are, but they're very, they're very expensive. You really can't do it at scale. Yeah, for your yeah. first one, twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars, and then Kickstarter, yeah. of course, is all or nothing. So if you don't hit the goal, you right. don't get the money. And what was the result of that first campaign? 
the result was that it raised a little over $65,000. Wow. And what was the name of that game, that first one? That was Viticulture. It's a game about uh, building and running a vineyard in Tuscany. Wow. <laughs> That's a yeah. very specific yeah. niche. So the, uh, the common knowledge is, uh, yeah, you can't just put something on Kickstarter and expect, and expect just because it's on Kickstarter, it's going to get a lot of traffic. It's always the, the creator or, the, or the, who, they need to drum up the traffic and the interest and all that. So were you starting from scratch? Did you already have any kind of a following? I mean, were you literally like right out of the starting gate and you had to go from zero to 60? Well, I, and I love two things that you highlighted there. The idea that Kickstarter isn't there to promote your game and that having a fan base in advance of running a Kickstarter uh, can make a huge difference. I have written a personal blog for many, many years, probably 10 or 11 years now, a, a daily blog that I write. And I built up a small audience that way. But I also, a big part of that first campaign was I spent the first weekend writing individual emails to friends and family saying, this is a passion project. I would love if you could help me get it off the ground. Um, I didn't mass email everyone. It was like individual requests to a bunch of people. And that really helped get things moving at the beginning. But my the small fan, not fan base, but small readership that I had uh, did, did help a little bit. Did you have an email list with that blog too? Or was it strictly they were just visiting your, your site? Um, I didn't. But I, again, you're, you're actually giving all the best advice in this conversation, Bob. Yeah, because the email list I found is incredibly powerful and important. Um, I wish I had had that from the very beginning. Well, cool. Well, what I was impressed about you on that panel is that you the, the whole idea of engaging with people, having real relationships with people is like a crucial part of your strategy. And again, this is probably going to be one of your answers to a later question. But, but was that something that just made, I mean, was this obvious to you? Is this part of your nature? Or explain that aspect of, of what you did and, and just how it ties into a successful, well, not only Kickstarter campaign, but career as an artist. That, that's a huge part, and it is one of my answers to one of your questions about uh, key things that are responsible for my company's success. That that engagement, it, it's kind of something I figured out a, along the way. I, I started to figure out it through the personal blog when I realized that a blog is not just a one-way platform of me to put some words out there and people to read it, but rather each blog entry can be the start of a conversation. And so I try to end every entry with a, a question, and I'm active in the comments. I, I re- reply pretty much to every comment um, in the blog. And so I kind of had started to have this idea through writing the blog that that type of engagement was good. It, it was the foundation of relationships instead of just a one-time thing. And so I did that same thing through, uh, through Kickstarter. One thing on Kickstarter, especially with board games, is to send out early copies of the game to get reviews, and then you can put those reviews on the Kickstarter project page. And so... I've learned through that first project and and following projects that if I create relationships with reviewers in advance, and by that I mean maybe I comment on their YouTube channel or I I comment somewhere and not in a way to promote myself, but just to start to get to know them and let them know that I'm out here reading their content and enjoying their content, then later down the road when I come to them and say, hey, would you mind reviewing this prototype copy of my game for the Kickstarter, they're a lot more open to that rather than if my first email to them ever is asking them to do something for me. That's great, because that's advice that I've been dishing out for a, a long time. So I'm glad someone has, you know, yeah, you're just, you're just reinforcing that, that, yeah, yeah, reaching out. It's not always about asking for something, asking for coverage, asking for a sale or a review. Sometimes your initial communications with people just should be to establish the relationship. And hopefully you're genuine and authentic about it, too, right? You, you, oh, yeah. you appreciate what they do or whatever. 
And then, and then it also, it, so it sounds like even before Kickstarter, it wasn't like you, like you did a bunch of research and go, oh, I need to engage with people now. It was something <laughs> you, it was a habit you'd already established through your blogs. So it was just a continuation of that, right? Yeah. And I, I kind of got lucky in the idea that I started out creating that blog because I wanted to just write, but I learned so much. I've learned so much about interacting with people online in particular through, through creating that content. It's something that I, I recommend to any Anyone who's looking to do a Kickstarter or, or build a product, if you start creating some other type of content today that adds value to people, it can, it can make a huge difference in both in what you learn and to start to build up that fan base through the e-newsletter the e uh, subscription in particular, as you mentioned. So this is all awesome stuff, Jamie. And uh, like, I'd like to hear some of your successes. Like, How many Kickstarter campaigns, how many games have you now put out since that first one? And if you don't, whatever you can share. Well, I, I guess it's public knowledge on, on Kickstarter. Right. So it's not like it's private or, any, or anything. But just share with the listeners some of the, uh, some of the numbers and the success that you've had, the subsequent campaigns that you've done. So that, that first campaign was Viticulture. raised $65,000. And I, I shipped it about a year later. At that point, I, I launched another campaign for the, my next game, a game called Euphoria. And I mentioned this one in particular because Euphoria ended up raising a, a little over $300,000. Wow. And after I shipped it to backers, after I was confident that I had delivered on all my promises, started to see a, a, a more steady stream of revenue because I wasn't just kickstarting these games, but I was also entering them into distribution. That's when I moved on from my current job, my day job, to working full-time for Stonemeyer, Stonemeyer Games, my company. And since then, I've run five more Kickstarter campaigns for some games and some accessories that my company makes and some expansions. And that led up to probably the biggest Kickstarter, or not probably, definitely the biggest Kickstarter that we've had back uh, last year, a little over a year ago, November 2016, uh, was for a game called Scythe that uh, raised a little over $1.8 on Kickstarter. Wow. Yeah, so that was the biggest one. It was, a, it was a nice surprise. And so my company has had a, a nice growth curve thanks to Kickstarter and thanks to our, our fan base. That's awesome. And so, uh, yeah, you were able to quit your job, I guess, after that $300,000 campaign, number two. And uh, Stone Meyer, so that's obviously that's a, it's a part of your name is in that. Is there a reference to the... Yeah, the other guy involved with the company and my co-founder is a guy named Alan Stone. Okay. And so we combined our names to make the company. Um, he got involved early on in the design of Viticulture, that, that first game for Kickstarter. He doesn't work full time on the company. This is my full time job. He has other other jobs that he does, but uh, he's still he's still a partner, and it, it's been very helpful for me to have a partnership throughout the process. Nice. And so I know that you're again from this panel that I witnessed a while back. Uh, I know that you uh, your approach to Kickstarter is not just like one time projects, and then you look at it as like an ongoing series of campaigns. And is that still your business model moving forward? What's the philosophy of the ongoing campaign versus what maybe most people do with Kickstarter? My overall thought with Kickstarter is that it's a fantastic platform, not just for funding, but also to build community, to to engage with fans, to kind of build buzz and market a product, uh, kind of because there's an urgency behind the Kickstarter campaign. There's a, it's a limited time frame. Um, it's an opportunity to make it better using things like stretch goals. So you start out with a base a, ver a base version of the product, and the more money you raise, the more people that get involved, you can make a better version of it. I love all those aspects. And, and you get to, one of the most important perhaps is that you get to gauge demand for something. So, you know, for, for book publishing, you might know, okay, there, I need to print at least a thousand copies of this book versus maybe a much smaller print run or a much bigger print run. But the, the last part of your question was, am I still doing it? And, uh, and the, the answer is no, I've actually, I, 
I haven't 100% quit Kickstarter and crowdfunding, but I have decided, and this will come up in one of your future questions. You, you, you kind of prefaced me in advance of asking one of the biggest challenges that I'll oh, encounter. Okay, yeah. Uh, consistently throughout my time running the company, that the biggest challenge has been has been time. And after the side Kickstarter, as successful as it was, I realized just how much time I had spent planning and executing and running that Kickstarter campaign and on all the fulfillment and the customer service involved. And I realized that I would rather have that time to focus on other things. So because of that, I've kind of moved away from Kickstarter and gone, we're, we're moving into a more traditional publishing route. Oh, cool, cool. And that's that's quite often the evolution of a lot of, yeah, you start kind of indie exactly. and you're, you're, you're forging new paths and then, yeah, things things change as you get more established. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick break from the interview. If you like what you're hearing and you'd like to support my life's mission to educate, inspire, and empower creative entrepreneurs like you, please consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash Bob Baker. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bob Baker. You can learn all about it right there on that page. And now, back to the interview. Well, let's go ahead and uh, before I uh, step on any of the, <laughs> the answers that you have, let's kind of go, just yeah, jump into my – just a series of questions that I love to ask every guest. I think it really brings out some best practices that people can latch on to. So, so, yeah, the first one I always ask is name – or if you can name three key things that were responsible for your growth uh, to full-time status as a game maker and all that, um, yeah. what would those three things be, Jamie? Well, I already mentioned one of them, but I have three backups. So I'll mention the three backups now anyway. The first is kind of a core philosophy that, that, I, that I've learned through Kickstarter. I realized this the first day that Viticulture launched. Up until that point, it had kind of been about, I thought of it as, as my dream project, my passion project, and I wanted people to support me mm-hmm. um, and support to help me make this thing. But as soon as I launched that campaign and I started to get strangers who were backing it, I realized that I kind of flipped it around and realized I'm much more excited to make something for you and, and add value to you and do something that you're passionate about. And so it, it turned from an inward-facing philosophy to an outward-facing one. And I've, I've used that philosophy throughout everything that I do in my company. Um, and I think that's, that's gone a long way. So I've been doing a series of workshops called the uh, well. I have a book called The Empowered Artist, and I have a, a, a series of workshops that I that I do, and that's one of the big points in it. Where I talk about the, the, the reasons that people create, and the first two are for self satisfaction. So it's like you know a sense of accomplishment. Oh, I had this idea to create this thing. I did it. It feels good. Also, and the second one is for recognition. For like you know when when somebody recognizes you as that guitar player, or author, or game board person, it feels good to be recognized, and they compliment right. your your skills or whatever. But really, things switch when you start doing it for, and I refer to it as for the benefit of others, and your career can go to a whole new level, and it, it just it changes how you market, how you, you know, you don't feel so sleazy, because it's not about being boastful, it's about what's in it for the other person, you know. You can't see him, but Jamie's nodding his head aggressively there. So I love hearing people that have, you know, made that kind of, had that kind of success embracing that philosophy. It's crucial, isn't it? Well, I like the way the user said it there, that, that, People can – the the impetus, the catalyst can come from your own passions, your own dreams. But it, the I think the success and the growth is often attributed to the latter part of that you said, the, the outward facing, the adding value to others. 
And that becomes more and more of a thing that drives you. Uh, in addition, right. and it still feels good. I mean, it's still personally oh, satisfying. Totally. Yeah, I mean, those things don't yeah. go away. I love getting comp- compliments, <laughs> and, you know. And when I hold my book up, I feel proud, you know. But I also know it's helping other people, and that's actually probably even a bigger or at least as important, you know. So cool. So adding value to other other people. What's number yeah. two back up there? <laughs> um, number two, we have actually touched on this one a little bit, but the idea of interaction and engagement and I think a, a concrete example of this is the blog example that I gave earlier, where if you are creating content, but you're not engaging the people who are engaging with that comment, you're you're really losing out on a lot of stuff. And so I tried to really embrace that. I'm, I'm very active on social media, on, on Facebook and, and Twitter and, and my blog. And there's a board game platform called Board Game Geek that, that board game lovers are very active on. And it, I'm kind of constantly surprised that people seem delighted that the, that the designer of the game is chiming in to answer their questions. They get, they get a lot out of that. And it kind of shows that I'm, I'm just as passionate about it as they are. So I'm sure when you've shared this, I mean, because I've, I've heard it so much over, over the years, you get, you get people are going, I just want to create the thing and all this social media. And they, and, they, and they think of, you know, Facebook and all the whatever, all these digital options that we have as some kind of burden. But you obviously haven't done that. What do you what's your advice for people? Or do you even have any for people that have that attitude about, oh, I got to do all this work to talk to people? Well, if you see it as work, it's probably always going to feel like work. I get I have the opportunity to talk with people and help people understand my games better and to share that passion with them for my games or for any games. For someone where it really does feel like work, they might ask themselves if they're really that passionate about it. And, and maybe they are. I, I don't think that's necessarily a disclaimer but or, or to discredit that. But like if, if you love writing books, but you don't ever want to talk to people about writing books, do you really love it that that much? Right. Does that make sense? To me, and kind of, part of the way I usually approach this is to get people to reframe it. Because again, if you're thinking yeah. of it as oh, this is some this it's a nece- like what people refer to marketing as a necessary evil. It's you know, it's like right. is it really? What? But then if you <laughs> ask them, do you like the idea of sharing your work with people who really enjoy it? They go, oh yeah, I'm totally down for that. What? Well, that's pretty much yeah. what marketing is. It's strategic sharing. You know, right. uh, and if you can think of it, and just I think something the mental switch will help people embrace it more. But some people just don't. Yeah. Won't get it. <laughs> That's okay. Cool. Number three, if you're ready for that one. Number three, this is kind of my backup one, but it, I, I found it to be incredibly important is um, art direction and graphic design. You, the question is about the success of my company, and and my games would not be successful if I if they didn't have good art direction and graphic design and beautiful illustrations. It's something that I, I kind of leverage a lot of different people for advice on this, but I've also kind of. I've learned to hone those skills over time of, does this look good? Does this capture someone's imagination? Will this look good on the shelf? Will this look good as a thumbnail online? Things like that. Obviously, this isn't a philosophical thing, but I, I I find it to be incredibly important with any aspect of media. I'm sure you found this with your books. You have beautiful art. People can't see this, but on your on your wall behind you, you have beautiful art. And that's actually artwork that I did myself. I, I was I, I suspected that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. But, but for every book cover, right? You can it it makes a huge difference. That do you, how what what do you think about when you when you create the the cover for the books? Yeah. So I have a um I have a balanced approach to it, and, and my recommendation, and, and depending on where people are, yes, I think you you need to put out a, a as high of a quality product as you can. And so, uh, however, depending on the mindset of the person, like if someone is a uh, 
that they've never published their book. Sometimes people can take that advice and it paralyzes them because they get caught uh, up in what I call the perfection curse. And so they never get that thing out. So I would rather somebody get some version of the thing out, like your early version of your games probably are not right. at the standard that you have now, but you got them out there, you got feedback. And I would rather someone err on that side of getting it out and shipping it, as Seth Godin likes to say than to wait until they think it's perfect, you know? So, right. so yes, quality is important as long as it doesn't keep you from getting it out into the world. I like the way you said that. I, I love the idea of the minimum, minimum viable product, yes. um, and that works well with, uh, with board games too. Usually the, the advice that I give to creators, especially creators who are on a, on a low budget, if they are looking to launch their game on Kickstarter, I do recommend that they get one or two pieces of representative art for the game and then they can use the funding to make the rest of the art um, that can hopefully prevent um, the issue that you're talking about here of the, them trying to get everything finished and done and perfect right but just having a little bit something that that transfers how they picture the game in their mind onto paper so people can feel that and experience that Nice, nice. I mean, obviously, this interview certainly, if someone is is has an aspiration to be a game uh, creator or designer, I'm not sure what the proper word is there. <laughs> is, is that right, publisher, designer, or creator, or, or publisher? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll... Um, but even if people, yeah, I'm hope I'm hoping that even people who don't uh, have are in a totally different creative line of work. I mean, there's a ton of value that we can get out of this. But yeah, apply all these principles to your own creative discipline there. The next question I'd like to ask is like share a major business or creative challenge you faced. How did you overcome it? What did you learn from it? I think you it, you insinuated that we may have already touched on that, but but we go ahead and uh, yeah. major business and creative challenge. The way you phrase the question is is for me is always time and has been for a while. So I base I work about seventy eight to eighty hours a week on my company. I spend a lot of time on it, and I love what I do. It, it does not feel like work all that much, but I have tried to learn if there are things that I'm doing and that my company is doing that aren't helping the company and aren't helping our fans and helping as much as they could. The example I gave was Kickstarter. As much as I love Kickstarter and I, I and I, I think it's been a key element of my company existing and growing to what it is today, I think at this point it's uh, it takes so much time that I'd rather spend that time doing other things. Yeah, and that's one thing that I've – I've only done one fan funding campaign. Uh, I did through, through a site called Rocket Hub. It was, a, that was uh-huh. a couple of friends of mine that used that, and uh, it was moderately successful. It was for my artist empowerment or the Empowered Artist book. The, all the research that I've done, yeah, it says people underestimate the time that, I, that a fan funding campaign takes. There's a lot of upfront prep work and preparation for it. You're yeah. really engaged during the whatever the 20, 30 days or whatever your time frame is. And then there's a follow-up and, and, the, and the living right. up to the commitment. So I can see where that would be a big time suck. So what I'm curious is if you're shifting into a new kind of an altered business model, is it still catering directly to your fans outside of Kickstarter? I think, well, the biggest difference is the actual transaction. So instead of a, a, a customer buying the game from me, they will buy it from a retailer. And so my goal is to essentially st- still simulate the Kickstarter process, all the engagement, the community building, the interaction, the comments, the letting people influence the final product with their ideas and their thoughts and their opinions, still having all that stuff. But in the end, when when the customer goes to buy the product, instead of buying it from me, they'll go online or they'll go to their local retail game store and buy it. 
but it helps to have that built-in audience. You had to be able to send there yes. as opposed to most – Yeah, most people like, like – I refer to it as they push their product through the system. Like they, they push mm-hmm. it through to distributors and the retailers and hopefully they, they want to reach people on the other end. And the way I describe my own book business is I did an end around and I created mm-hmm. – I, I went directly to the end user, the readers. In my case, it was musicians because most of my books are on music marketing. So I built a relationship with readers and a demand and a, and a reputation, and then now they pull it through the system and go to their libraries and ask them, you know, to carry it or whatever. And so it's a different. It sounds like a similar approach that you, you'll be taking, right? Absolutely, and I like the way that you said that the, the idea of almost inspiring your customers to ask for the product from the place where they where the transaction happens is absolutely huge. And I've, that's actually a challenge that I'm facing right now and that I will continue to face because I've almost trained my customers to come to me for the product before it's made. Uh, They're used to the Kickstarter. And so now I'm having to slowly kind of gently nudge them towards what you just described, which is to go to the retailers and say, Hey, I want this game. I want to buy it. Can you stock this, this product for me? Do they sell board games on Amazon too? I assume. Yeah, they sell they sell board games on Amazon. There's some big online retailers. There's actually one in St. Louis called Miniature Market that that focuses on board games and miniature games. There's all sorts of stuff about that industry that I'm just clueless about, but I think I find it <laughs> fascinating. Just one real quick thing: you mentioned um, some kind of a community or something where you had the word geek in it. And yes. So I was just curious because I yeah I'm all about uh, also I think a crucial. Th- thing is for people to know clearly who your ideal fans are, and quite often it's a niche yeah. within a niche. Not knowing the specifics of the of the games, I had a feeling that would you is it safe to say are your fans or the people that support you in the geek culture or are the games oh, yeah. geared for, toward them? Definitely, definitely, and it's uh, yeah. That, the site I mentioned is called Board Game Geek, which is uh, I guess it's almost Facebook for board gamers. It's a very well populated site and it's very targeted. It's one of the few places that I feel comfortable doing like banner ads online because I know how how specific and targeted it is to that specific audience. And it is a niche community, but it's also a, it's also a pretty big one. There are millions and millions, tens of millions of, of board gamers worldwide, some of them in the U.S. and many of them international as well. Nice, nice. So is that another crucial thing, the knowing who your fan was and if you just simply attracted them to you or if you went out to those types of communities where they're hanging out? Because you're one yourself, I assume. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so uh, I have a lot of people are like, yeah, it just amazes me when some people go, I don't know who my fan is, you know? And so usually I, my advice to them is just to look in the mirror. They're usually a reflection of, <laughs> of who you are. I like that. So cool. and, and the idea, I think that almost the step after that is after you realize who your fans are, find where those fans go to talk to each other, whether it's online or in person. And, and become a part of that community, which is something that I didn't do enough in advance of the Viticulture campaign. I wasn't as involved in that community as I should have been. But since then, I realized how awesome that community is and how much fun I have with it. So I'm, up, I'm there every day, many times a day on that website. All right, Jamie, so I'm going to move down to the next question. This is what's one I just like to ask every guest. And so if you could name a book that changed your life, what would that book be and why was it so impactful? This was a fun one to think about because um, a lot of books have had different impacts on me. But the one that came to mind at the top of the list was a book called Predictably Irrational. Oh, have you heard of this book? I, it rings a bell, but I definitely have not read it. It's by a uh, behavioral psychologist named Dan Ariely. The book is Predictably Irrational. Okay, I've heard of him. I've seen he's got like has TED talks, or he's yes. I've heard him interviewed and stuff. But I didn't realize I didn't make the connection there. Okay, the cool. TED talk is what hooked me originally. He talks a lot about um, the economics of pricing 
And so as much as I love kind of all the, the soft elements that we've talked about in running a business, I also love things like picking the right price and printing the right number of games and things like that. I love just learning about human nature and human behavior and how that affects pricing and, and all the little business decisions that I make. I learned so much from reading that book. Oh, cool, cool. I may have to check that one out. And so here's, a, I think we kind of already touched on this maybe, unless you have a different angle on it. But so I always like to ask people like what truly motivates you to do what you do. Another another way of stating it is what's your big why, but what motivates you to, to put in all the hours that you said that you put in on this on this business for the last few or several years? What would that be? Yeah, I, I love the concept of the why. Did, did you get that from Simon Sinek? I've been asking that prior oh. to that, but yeah, he's okay. uh, but that, that's, he certainly reinforced that, yeah. You're ahead of your time. Uh, <laughs> I'm a pioneer in all sorts of yeah. ways. <laughs> <laughs> my why and my, my company's why, our mission, is uh, to bring joy to tabletops around the world. You know, the, the, I love the idea of making people happy, making things that, that people are happy to make them smile, make them bring together friends and family. And, uh, and the worldwide part is really, really important, too. I, I'm not just focused on English speaking people, but also I have partnerships around the world to make international versions of my games and distribution worldwide to reach all kinds of people. Was your, did that phrase bring joy to tabletops around the Table- world? Is that, was that it? Yeah, some people call them board games. Another way of saying is, is tabletop games. So that would be an excellent way, not an elevator speech, but like you know, meet somebody at a, at a party. So what do you do? I bring joy to tabletops around the world. That, that would definitely lead to a, yeah. how do you do that? <laughs> that would lead to a follow-up question. But yeah. I love that. That's a very succinct way because, yeah, unlike like apps and other types of games, you create physical ones. So people have to get together. So there's a bigger mission in bringing people together, bringing more joy, family connection. Yeah. I can see, wow, I can see that. How could that be a huge mission for you? Yeah. Awesome, yeah. awesome. A lot of my games also, part of that goal is uh, they span from two-player games. Like, most of my games allow for two players to play or up to five or six players. Part of that goal is being that uh, couples can play or two friends can play the games, but also if they want to have a game night, a greater group of people can gather around the table and play. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, and you also like tap into that sort of indie, like a lot of times, um, I mean, there's some people that like the mass market stuff and they only see, you know, they will play Monopoly or they go see the blockbuster right. movies. But there is a certain element of culture where they introduce their friends to something that's not so common and it's kind of a cool, right. gives them a hipster kind of a <laughs> feeling yeah. or whatever. And I, I guess you tap into that too with your games since it's not mainstream. Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the most important aspects of marketing to me is finding ways to encourage people to get our games to the table. And part of that is making good games that they like actually playing. But the more that I can get someone to bring one of my games to their table is the greater the chance that they might introduce it to someone else who has never played a game or has never played that game. And then it spreads out from there. So, yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of it. Just finding ways to make these things accessible to more people. Cool. And then another question is future plans. Uh, I think I think Mark Victor Hansen perhaps coined the phrase a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG. Moving forward, uh, what are what are your big plans for the future? Well, I like this question because my answer I, I might be a little different than, than some people because my answer is pretty much that I, I love what I do and I just want to keep doing it for as long as I can. Like I, I don't have uh, an exit plan. I'm not looking to like be bought out. I'm not looking to to make millions and millions of dollars. So that, that would be nice if we are continue to be successful. But I just, I love making games. I love bringing them to people. I love talking with people about games and I would love to do it for as long as I can. 
And the nice thing about the game industry is one thing that allows me to do this is that I don't always have to be constantly printing new games. I can also rely on reprints of my older games and kind of continued printing of those games. Similar to in the book industry, if, if, if a book is successful, you don't have to rewrite it every time. You just keep printing that same book. Publishers yeah. refer to that as a backlist, I guess, of your backlist. old, yeah, your 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 archive of, yeah, and, and that's right. what, another beautiful thing about the independent, either independent books or music or whatever, and there's nothing like it's going to go out of style or your, your games are going to be outdated because they're based on Facebook or whatever. Uh, right. Yeah, you, I mean, they can be favorites for decades, I'm, I'm assuming, or, or, or you can be marketed yeah. and, and shared for, for decades. So that's, that's the hope. So people wanted to find out more about you. Are you still do that blog that you mentioned, or are you still active on that? Yeah, I write a crowdfunding blog twice a week at kickstarterlessons.com. And even if you're new to if someone listening to this is curious about crowdfunding, there's a massive list of archived entries going step by step of how to be successful on Kickstarter. Um, it'll be a little daunting to someone who sees it for the first time. Um, and my book might be a little bit more approachable, but all that content is there and it's free to, for anyone to read. And that yeah. website again was Kickstarter. Kickstarterlessons.com. Just Kickstarterlessons, plural, dot com. Yeah. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Is that the main place to go if people wanted to connect with you or find out more about what you do? That website is shared with uh, the name of my company. It's also StillmeyerGames.com. We're Stillmeyer Games on Facebook and Twitter. I just I usually say Kickstarter Lessons because it might be a little easier for people to remember. Right. You know, how, to, how to spell Meyer. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. And all, and all that. So Kickstarterlessons.com. Cool. Jamie, this has been a real thrill. It was even ex- I, I had high expectations, and you exceeded it. <laughs> I love your philosophy, and congratulations on all the success that you had. And also, yeah, we, I mentioned the book early on, but I'm gonna, also going to link to it. But it's a crowdfunder's strategy guide, correct? Yeah, the subtitle is uh, "Build a Better Business by Building Community," which I think is something that that you've talked about here today. That we've talked about. I, I love that aspect of building a community around something that you're passionate about. So even so, yeah, obviously it's not just for board game people. Right. It's it's for right. community builders and crowdfunders in uh, general, and that's available on Amazon, I'm assuming, and various yeah. various spots. So I'll I'll link to that. So uh, thanks a lot, Jamie. I really appreciate it and continued success. And I hope your new uh, business model gives you a little bit more free time. So maybe you could. <laughs> cut down to maybe 65 or 70 hours a week <laughs> yeah, we'll see we'll see <laughs> all right thanks a lot uh, yeah. take care I hope you enjoyed that inspiring interview. I just want to remind you again, if you'd like to get free access to my course called 30 Ways to Become an Empowered Artist, all you have to do is get on the Creative Entrepreneur VIP list. It's free. It's easy. Just go to promoteyourcreativity.com. Again, that's PromoteYourCreativity.com. And if you want to support my ongoing mission to educate, inspire, and empower musicians, writers, visual artists, and more, please go to Patreon.com forward slash Bob Baker and consider becoming a patron. I'll also have links to these things in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm Bob Baker saying so long for now.